Okay, now we're fully ready. So I prepared so many questions for you. <laughs> Uh, first, I'll do some introduction, <laughs> <laughs> and then we start, okay? Very yeah. bad. Hi, everybody. This is Shift M Podcast, and uh, our next episode, which uh, we're um, delivering after a, a quite a long uh, delay, but this time our guest is David West. You definitely know who, who is David. He will make a quick introduction about himself and then we're going to have a lot of questions for him. Uh, it should take about an hour, maybe a little bit more. So David, thanks for coming and the microphone is yours. Say a few words about yourself, please. Hi, I'm a, a retired professor of computer science and business and uh, I have a background in cultural anthropology and Asian philosophy. Uh, if you see these uh, these three racks of books behind me are all Asian philosophy uh, books. But uh, living in Southern Utah, it just snowed last night. Um, I have known uh, Igor for a long time and um, uh, it's been a very uh, wel welcome partnership. So I'm very happy to be here. Okay, that's great, thanks. Uh, we all know you for the books you wrote about object-oriented programming, but this time the podcast is about management and more global questions than programming. So I will try to ask you things which are not directly related to object-oriented programming, more about management and philosophy of software engineering, that kind of stuff. And I would like to start with the question, um, um, uh, a simple one, who did you vote for just a few days ago? <laughs> Both voting in America is secret. <laughs> now, um, uh, I actually did not vote for either Biden nor Trump. Um, uh, I, I think that both of them are evil and, uh, you know, I am not a big fan of government. So um, I, I cast a protest vote. <laughs> did you vote the last time, four years ago? Uh, for for but vote for Trump? No, I ne would never vote for uh, any. I would never vote for either of the two major candidates. So you never you voted know, the, for life? Uh, I voted yes, but not for the Democrat or Republican candidates. Uh, my my personal opinion: the biggest problem with the United States is the two-party system. You know, the only thing worse is a one-party system. <laughs> uh -huh. You know. Uh, but uh, but no, neither neither side is good for the country. So interesting. And uh, do you think something is happening right now with the country, with the society, or it was like this always? Um, you what what you're seeing is a uh, pushback. Uh, the The country has always been far more conservative. Uh, than people would like to believe. And by conservative, I don't mean racist and misogynistic. I mean, uh, you know, that they have a system of values that are not popular. Um, you know, being religious, for instance. Um, and the, the last, oh, I don't know, since, uh, oh, for the last, 15, 20 years, there has been a lot of uh, governmental interference in these other other ways of life. 
So right now where I'm living, for example, is uh, ranching and farming country. And the federal government is famous for coming in and telling these ranchers what they can and can't do with their land. Uh, and these are people that you know have been doing this for generations. They know what they're doing. And so when the government comes in and says, no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do that, it bothers them a lot. And so the, the, uh, the 68 million people that voted for Trump uh, are mostly that kind of uh, group of people. They're just tired of being pushed around by the government. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a protest vote. None of these people like Trump. You know, uh, he, he's, uh, uh, most of them really think he's a terrible person, but they don't like government. <laughs> So, uh, so they're voting against government. They aren't voting for Trump. Yeah. And what about tech? Yeah, that, what about tech people, programmers, engineers? How does this all affect us? What do you think? What is changing now in the in the tech world? Aside from farm. Uh, yeah. Well, the yeah, I think that the. The, the, the only good thing that might come from, from Biden with regard to technology is that in the United States, the internet uh, has been given over to the rich people. Uh, so one of uh, Trump's appointees, Ajit Pai, uh, basically uh, destroyed the Net Neutrality Act so that it allowed the big uh, ISPs to charge more for whoever they wanted. Uh, and you know, play favorites with uh, with technology. Uh, that'll go away under Biden, so that's a good thing. Uh, the lawsuit against Google will probably go away too, which is a bad thing. You know, Google and Facebook and well, not that Google and Amazon are not that bad. Facebook's got to go. <laughs> you know. So anyway, so, so no, technology is going to be uh, uh, given a, a free reign still for another four years. So. so you think that these social networks, because you're saying Facebook is going to go, so you think the social networks, which are now you know, in charge of the personal information of everything we talk to each other, this is not a good thing, right? According to no, it's not a good thing. Um, the, the, uh, the whole idea of like old newspapers and press and stuff is that you had a, you had a person who was responsible, an editorial you know, content, who could be held accountable if they did weird things. On the internet, you don't. In social media, you don't. Um, you also don't have anybody that you can trust. You know, the, the editor of a newspaper is someone who uh, has a code of ethics, you know, they, they uh, police themselves to some degree. They try to be fair and so on. You can't say that about Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, you just, you know, he, he's not a good person. And so to have him in charge of the you know, media content is not a good thing for anybody. Are you in general in favor of more control over people's life or less control? Oh, I'm absolutely less. 
less control. And if we talk about That's management, if we move to a, like a software world, people, let's say programmers, they work in a company, in a team. So you're in favor of what kind of management where people are under strict control and rules and discipline or when they more free, like now this agile idea or you know, flat organizations, democracy. Yeah, okay, so, so this is a double-edged sword. So if you go back to uh, when Kent Beck first was writing about extreme programming, and he was basically saying, you know, let us do our jobs, you know, let us get rid of all of this uh, oppressive management, you know, we'll, we'll do the right thing, uh, which is, is absolutely correct. But that comes with a cost that if you're going to be given your freedom, you damn well better be responsible. You know, so Kent was talking about you have to do continuous improvement of you as a person, as a programmer, as a team player, you know, all these different kinds of things. And a lot of people, particularly in the programming world, don't have that set of skills. They were never taught how to work in a team. They were never, uh, uh, I go to conferences and I ask people, you know, what they read. And Nothing. I mean, you know, the programmers may read uh, a manual here and there. Uh, there's a, a few of them that are enlightened and will listen to your podcasts or read your books or read my books or whatever. But those are a very small minority. So those people, I mean, they, they don't deserve, to, you know, to be, to be free. They are keeping up their half of the bargain. They aren't being responsible. So what do we do but, with those people, with the majority? Because the majority is irresponsible. You're right, definitely. So how mm -hmm. the management should uh, deal with that situation? Uh, there is a school of management. It's called servant leadership, uh, where you, uh, and it's very Taoist in, in practice that you lead by following, uh, I mean, it, this all sounds you know, very mystical and so on. But the management should itself adopt the role of, okay, I'm not in charge. I'm not forcing people to do this or forcing people to do that. I am setting an example of what, you know, would be good for them to do. I am very carefully aware and watching them. And I, you know, uh, will, will say good things to people who are doing the right thing and say uh, constructive things to people who are not doing the, the, the right thing. Uh, but it's a, uh, and then I go and make sure that people have what they need. Uh, you know, this, if you look again, you look at Kent Beck stuff talking about coaching and contrast that with a scrum master. You know, a scrum master is a controller. A coach, the way that Kent Beck wrote about it, is one of these servant leaders. He's there to serve the team not to control the team, not to run the team, but to help the team do what it needs to do. And uh, there, there's a whole raft of, uh, of books. My, my business management books are over there. Uh, but I could, uh, you know, there, I have a, a number of titles on my shelf about this kind of servant leadership, of, uh, you know, being supportive, being constructive, uh, and getting rid of the control aspect. 
and it'll work. It'll take a lot longer time. So if you're a manager worrying about your quarterly uh, performance review, it's not going to work for you. <laughs> but if you if you take a little bit longer view and say, you know, what's going to be best for my company, my team, uh, my division a year from now, it'll make a huge difference. Does it apply to all professions or only for tech people? This attitude of all professions, all professions. Yes. But if you look at people who are doing like, I don't know, people building houses or farmers or I don't know, some other professions, they kind of, you know, they always need some, I think, some control, some, I don't know, some force to kind of push them forward because people by definition, I think most of them are lazy and they don't really like to work. They like to do nothing. Maybe that's my understanding of in general people. There are exceptions, yes. of course, but in general, yes. people are not really happy to do the work. So there's, uh, uh, you go back in the United States, 50, no, a little bit more than that, probably 75, 80 years. Uh, this was an era of what was called scientific management. And the proponents of this scientific management had the view that you just said, people are generally lazy, uh, you know, this is a very classist approach. The people who were writing these books, of course, were professors and senior managers. And they thought that the blue collar worker was just, you know, a, a lazy slug. <laughs> and if you didn't control them, you were going to get crap. Well, that was wrong. I mean, that, you know, that's just as wrong as just saying, oh, well, let's love everybody and let them do what they want and good things will happen. I mean, those are the two sides. You've got to find a balance in the middle. Uh, when you have something like building a house or building um, a dam or a bridge or, or something of this sort, that's where most of our current ideas about management come from, is people have looked to these big engineering firms and said, oh, wow, look, you know, they can put up a, a Three Rivers Dam in China in, you know, five years, and it has billions of gallons of water and this and that, and, you know, isn't this wonderful? Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, I, you probably couldn't, well, I don't know. I, I, they'll say, well, you couldn't possibly have done this if, without doing this kind of command and control management. Well, the Egyptians built the pyramids. They didn't, <laughs> you know, they didn't have this stuff. Um, but then also you have the, the case that uh, building, we'll take building houses. And you have building houses, you have these big, uh, large builders, and they'll go out and they'll put up, uh, you know, 100 houses, uh, 300 houses a year. I mean, they, they build a lot of houses. And they have these very strict, rigid management things. They, you know, they have deadlines. They have, you know, this team does this, and then this team is going to be here 30 minutes later to do this. And it's, it's all very coordinated and scheduled and so on. But the quality of those houses is crap. I mean, you know, they, they're built to last 20 years, which is the length of a mortgage. And then they start falling apart and, uh, and they're hard to maintain. Uh, sounds a little bit like software. 
<laughs> you know, you, you build something that's good enough to last until you get your next job and then it all falls apart <laughs> after you've left uh, because the quality's not there because you, uh, you know, you have to give people some integrity if you want really quality work out of them. You, you can't treat them as slaves. You can't treat them, you know, as cogs in a machine. They're people. Do you know that currently the situation on the market is that uh, we need uh, more and more programmers. The demand is growing and growing. And most com com countries cannot supply that amount of programmers right now. So if you look at, especially European countries, I'm not sure about America, but if you look at European countries, they have like double the size of the demand is double the size of the supply of, of young programmers on the market. And at the same time, mm -hmm. the salaries for programmers growing every year, much faster than the growth of economy, much faster than any other profession. So it looks, many people say that now is the market of programmers, not the market of companies, not the market of projects, but market of programmers. So programmers dictate the rules. Programmers tell their employers what, what to do and how the projects will be run. So in this situation, mm -hmm. don't you think that giving even more freedom to programmers could be dangerous, I mean, strategically? Because they're already in charge. They already get too much. Oh, they already get too much. This is for sure. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, you, you're absolutely right that there is uh, this, this huge demand. But, but at the same time, if you, if you go and you look at what management is saying about all of this kind of stuff, they aren't happy. They're really not happy. And they, the biggest reason that they're not happy is that they're spending all of this money and they aren't getting any return on that investment. You know, they, you, you look at the IT budget of these companies and uh, it's huge, it's a huge amount of money. But you look at what that budget goes for, 80% of it, 80% of the IT budget for big companies goes to maintenance, keeping stuff running that, you know, if it was written well in the first place, it would, I mean, software doesn't wear out. Why do you need maintenance? Because it was crap. Um, and this isn't sustainable. Uh, you, you get to the point where you're spending uh, so much of your money just to keep the IT up and running, uh, that it, be, it becomes a real problem for management. So you look at, uh, at business experts, um, uh, Cotter, K-O-T-T-E-R, is uh, he's from Harvard and he writes a lot about management. And uh, he is one of many who are talking right now that IT is the biggest impediment now, not only do they not get anything from IT, but IT is holding them back from doing what they need and want to do as a business. And so this, uh, this burgeoning market for programmers is going to disappear pretty quick when these companies start saying, oh, we, we, you know, we've got to find an alternative. You know, we, we've got to find something different. Um, and, it, and they won't look to the IT professionals to find it. 
you know, they're, they're, they, they, they don't trust IT management any more than the programmers trust IT management. <laughs> you know, IT management, this big, huge group in the middle is, uh, they're, they're, they're a threatened species, I think. These maintainability problems, I think, are coming from what, uh, for example, you were talking in your book in Object Thinking, that they're coming from, from you know, the lack of structure in the heads of programmers. So programmers just think differently. They have no clear idea of what they're doing. And that's why they create all this unmaintainable code, which they get money for, but then they walk away and somebody, some other programmers join the team and they need to deal with this mess and the, the amount of mess is growing and this legacy software is everywhere. And you're absolutely right. We only maintain what other people created. Yeah. So maybe we need to be more yeah. to programmers and give them less freedom. I'm just philosophically asking. Yes, and uh, okay. I have to be a little bit philosophical here for a minute. Uh, there, there is, you know, all of this huge billions and trillions and quadrillions of lines of code out there uh, are not good, you know. Uh, it's it's stuff that uh, programmers, each with their own style, idiosyncratic ways of doing things, have built all of this stuff, and it doesn't work together nicely. It doesn't do anything else. So you could say, okay, well, what we need to do is we need to impose structure. Uh, well, we'll have everybody write in um, a single language. Well, we'll pick Java just for fun. <laughs> And nobody can write any programs anymore except in Java. And it has to be Java version 17.2. Can't be earlier or later. It has to be just 17.2, period. And we're going to create a manual of style like they do for, uh, for language, for natural language, for English, for instance. Uh, We'll have a shrunken white manual, or we'll have a, uh, you know, a Roger's Thesaurus and a Webster's Dictionary. And if you don't conform to those, your code doesn't get accepted. You know, okay. Um, you could do that. It's not going to work because the problem is deeper than that. The problem comes from a fundamental flaw in the whole idea of programming in general. So if you go back to the Turing computer, the Turing machine, very simple device, read, write, head, and an infinite tape, an infinite tape of ones and zeros. And your program and your data is all stored on that tape. Well, it's infinite. And this means that uh, not only is there a one way of writing a program so that it adds two plus two equals four, there's actually an infinite number of ways of writing a program that two plus two equals four. Uh, and there's an infinite number of ways of doing it wrong. You know, two plus two comes up with five, seven, 57, 42, you know, whatever. I mean, there's an infinite number of ways of doing that wrong. 
and there is no objective way of saying this way is better than that way. You can come up with criteria that says, oh, well, over here I did it in one line of code, and over here I did it in 10 lines of code. Well, okay, what does that prove? Not much. You know, maybe this, uh, this one line of code was APL, which nobody can read. You know, and this 10 lines of code was small talk, which is a really cool language. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to play with. Um, it, it's an arbitrary uh, a conclusion. And so you have no objective way of saying this is a good way to write a program, this is a bad way of writing a program. So how are you going to come up with those style manuals? How, you know, how are you going to come up with the libraries of things that are going to work? I mean, we've been trying this for 75 years and it doesn't work. And so we, we take programming at this level and we say, well, we can't uh, decide anything at this level. So we'll, we'll build something on top of, we'll build a framework on top of it. And now you have to, to write in this framework and that imposes a little bit of discipline, but you still have you know, the fringe cases and the exceptions and things of this sort. So then you put something else on top of that. And then you say, oh, well, this is, this is actually kind of hard for people to do. Programmers aren't very bright. And, you know, we need to control them and we need to do something else. So we'll put this uh, management tool on top of that. And then we'll put uh, some kind of uh, process management tool on top of that. And so you keep doing this. And so today to be a programmer, you can't be a programmer. I can't go out and write COBOL, uh, you know, which is the first language I ever learned, COBOL and assembler. I can't write uh, a COBOL program today. I have to be a full stack developer. I have to go into Eclipse or IntelliJ or something of this sort. And I have to use Jira and I have to use this and I have to use that. And I'm probably using a framework of some sort or another. Uh, and, and all of it just adds more arbitrary complexity to the whole thing. So you're, you're building a Jenga tower that's gonna collapse. And we've already seen examples of that. Uh, the, you've heard the case of the, you know, when the, the, the three lines of code that broke the internet I'm not sure I remember. Can you tell about it? Okay. Yeah. So um, there was a guy, uh, he was Eastern European, or his name was at least. I don't know him. So, uh, but his name was Eastern European. But he, uh, he wrote a, a, a bit of code called Left Pad. And it was like four or five lines of code. And he put it out there in one of these open source libraries. And then he got into a dispute with the, the people that had that library up. Uh, they, they, they wanted him to change a name or do something and he didn't want to. Um, and so uh, he took his code down. You know, he just removed it from the library. And within hours, Netflix, um, I, I can't remember, but a number of, I think it was even Facebook, but a whole bunch of these big programs all of a sudden crashed because they had, you know, had wrote the program that used this library and used this framework, which used this 
uh, library, which used this framework, which ultimately used left pad. Left pad wasn't there anymore, <laughs> you know, out there in these open source directories. And so all the software built on top of it crashed. Now they, um, uh, and, and what they did to resolve that is that the, uh, the company the, that owned the library, the open source library, put the code back over the author's objection because all these big companies, you know, were putting pressure on, you know, we've got to have this code, we've got to have this code. And so they did an, they, they stole this guy's work from him, you know, uh, took it away from him and gave it to all these big companies just to keep things running, uh, which is not a very nice thing to do. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't like people stealing your work, I don't think. Yeah, that's for sure. But you know, it's an interesting story. But you know what they say now, and it, I also feel that because I was a programmer also like some time ago. But I remember when I was a kid and I was in uh, in school, then it was actually the um, possible for me to kind of see all the problems which computers have because there were so few computers and there were so few problems. But now it's almost impossible to be a programmer everywhere. You need to be more you know, niche programmer. If you're the Java programmer, then you know very little about databases, for example. Or if you're Java, you, you know very little about uh, networking and so on and so forth. So now it mm -hmm. seems that total area, the domain of programming of computer science is, is getting so big that it's necessary to, you know, to build this pyramid, like you said, this pyramid of dependencies. When I just work on this level, on this layer, mm -hmm. and I don't care what's beneath me, I just rely on this layer and I don't know how this layer works. And I don't want to know. So I go up mm -hmm. and up and up and then people start creating these domain specific languages. Probably you've heard about them, like languages which are very specific for very small problem to solve. And some programs they only learn this language and you if you ask them how this language works they don't have an answer they don't know what's beneath like how it goes down to bytes and bits and all that stuff so yep. some people say it's good some people say it's good that we are becoming you know less smart probably because we don't see the full pyramid and programmers are becoming more like a commodity profession like you just we just train you to use this domain specific language you're the programmer and that's enough so you don't need to be really a scientist. You don't need to understand deep. So that's what's going on now. And what do you think? Mm -hmm. about well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So you, you can build this complexity. Uh, you can achieve results. You, you, you could probably, if, if you did this in a really disciplined fashion, if you really forced programmers to toe the line, and follow the standards and uh, things of this sort. You, you could build really, really, really good programs. Does that mean that you solved the problem for the business? No. <laughs> you know, you know um, there, there was, the, well, there still is. If you, if you go into computer science departments, uh, there are still people getting PhDs in how to prove that a program is correct, you know, mathematically prove that this program is correct. Um, and yeah, okay, that, that, that's nice, you know, you can prove that yes, this program works and will always work and will never fail and uh, is the most efficient algorithm and takes up the least CPU time and so on and so forth. 
so what? You know, we're talking about management. I'm a management and I've got a problem over here. I've got to uh, process these customers or I've got to deal with uh, this business issue. And uh, it's a problem for me to get that done. Okay. Uh, and I give it to you as a good software engineer and you come back and you write a program and you say, you know, this program is right. It fits standards. It conforms to all of these kinds of things. And the manager looks at you and says, yeah, but it doesn't solve my problem. <laughs> now that that's where the, that that's where the real issue is, is, and that's what's getting really worse is that the manager lives in a world in a complex world. You know, uh, and, and it's a large world. I mean, it's a global world. So you're building these long, uh, large scale, complex systems. These systems have to be adaptable. They have to respond to change, very rapid kind of change. Um, and it creates a, a really interesting set of problems. The programmer, he's living over here in this nice formal world, you know, the, the computer. I mean, the computer has rules. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's all nice and clear and cut. Uh, the program can't deal with ambiguity. You know, the, everything has to be black and white in the computer. And so you become a master of this mechanical world over here and it doesn't matter how good you get at building machines, what the business person, what the manager needs is he needs, he needs something um, like a human, like a, a really intelligent human being, you know, someone who can deal with uh, uh, complexity, who can deal with ambiguity, who can fill in between the lines, you know, all these things that a computer can't do. Uh, and, and don't tell me that AI is going to solve that because it's not, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, you, you've got uh, a mismatch. Uh, a long, long time ago, we used to talk about the impedance mismatch between objects and databases, relational databases. You know, the, oh, I can do all this really wonderful thing over here in objects, but then if my objects have to talk to a relational database, all of a sudden it takes four times as long to write a program as it did before because they're two different philosophical worlds. They're two different kinds of domains. Uh, so I will, when, when we're done talking, I'll send you a link um, to, um, uh, it, it's just a short little book. It was put out by Carnegie Mellon. Uh, uh, it's called, um, anyhow, it's about uh, building complex adaptive systems, large-scale complex adaptive systems. This was, uh, it was Carnegie Mellon University was uh, uh, commissioned to do this study. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is where the Software Engineering Institute uh, is responsible for all the standards and stuff for software engineering uh, is located. Uh, the study was was funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, so that's not necessarily a good thing. But um, they were looking at what 
what are the challenges and what are the problems of these large scale adaptive systems, complex adaptive systems? And they basically came to the conclusion that, uh, that everything we know about software engineering is not gonna help us because it's a different world. Uh, the, this world of complexity and, and so on is a very different world. It's like a biological world. So everything we know about machines doesn't tell us diddly about growing a plant or creating an animal or creating an intelligent human being. <laughs> you know, it doesn't tell us any of that stuff. And so uh, it's, it's very interesting reading. It's, it's very worthwhile reading and it's very short. Uh, but it, it lays out this philosophical problem of programmers and software engineers and computer scientists live in a world that is totally apart from the world that the business lives in and business management lives in. And the, the two aren't compatible. So you're gonna have to invent a new bridge. That by the way, is what I'm currently trying to do is to invent this new bridge. So book number three will be on that. And that actually, that's really interesting. And that leads me to the next question. How do you think managers should um, understand who is a good programmer, who is not a good programmer, who is high performer, who is low performer? By what? By lines of code, by bytes, by probably you're going to say by the amount of business problems they solve. But usually programmers, they're staying quite far away from actual business problems, even though we think and we hope that programmers are going to in the end solve those business problems. But in reality, if you look at the real project, programmers are basically still writing you know, lines of code and they're dealing with objects and classes, not with real life problems. And then eventually somehow this connection happens, this bridge you're talking about. But if I'm a manager and I have a team of five programmers and I deal with real programming, so how do I, what, what, what is the right way to measure the performance of these people? Because there are many opinions about this. Some people say that we need to use like explicit metrics and basically count lines of code. Some people say that completely uh, just get away from all metrics and don't measure people by numbers. So where are you standing in this? Okay. So uh, let's go back in history. Let's go back to uh, 1975. Uh, and let's uh, listen to a guy named James Martin. So James Martin is, uh, is one of the uh, largest names in the 70s, writing about computing and, and about uh, what we would call IT about business computing, things of this sort. Uh, he is also the, the, uh, a big proponent of databases. He was the, uh, the, the leading proponent of a transition from what was uh, functional programming, or not functional, uh, but uh, procedural programming, to data-based kind of programming. The idea was, that, oh, procedures, the way we do things changes, but the data stays the same. The data is more stable. And so uh, he was a big advocate of this data-centric approach to doing things. But he also considered, and he was looking at this problem of management. How do you uh, deal with teams uh, and so on? And the first thing he said was, well, you've got to get rid of the human resources department and uh, you know, the compliance department. 
because human resources is there to make sure that everybody is treated fairly. And so they do things like they say, oh, you have, you're a programmer one, you're a programmer two, you're a programmer three. And your wage has to be based on your job category, not what you do, but your job category. Um, and uh, you can't come in and say, oh, um, this person is much more efficient or much more productive than this person over here. Let's give him twice the salary. You can't do that because human resources is no, no. They're, you know, you either have to promote him up to a programmer 15, which doesn't exist, or you have to pay him the same as everybody else. So that, I mean, that, that's number one. You have to get rid of that kind of, of mindset. The second thing is, is that uh, you look at a guy named Robert Glass, who was also writing in this period of time. And uh, he has a, a bunch of, of things that he, he wrote about uh, uh, productivity and management and things of this sort. And it, it's a very known fact. I mean, this has been true from pretty much from day one that the individual difference between programmers can be as high as 100 to one. You know, this programmer over here can be 100 times more productive and effective than this, this person over here. Uh, we know that, and we've known that from day one. Uh, but we aren't allowed to acknowledge that. So James Martin in 1975, he proposed, uh, you know, SWAT teams. He says, you know, identify uh, the, well, you know, take, take a group of programmers, put them uh, and give them their own little special office over here, you know, with closed doors to sit in cubicles, you know, give them a coffee machine, give them a popcorn machine, you know, make their, their work nice. And then, you know, let them basically manage themselves. This is the same thing Kent Beck said 25 years later, you know, let them manage themselves. Uh, but make it all very, very public so that uh, uh, just like uh, in Scrum and in uh, XP, you have these charts up on the wall that shows what everybody's doing and what's effective. And you can walk into a room and you can look around and you can say, oh, you know, every, every pair uh, that has broken the build had Dave in it. You know, if Dave wasn't in the pair, they never broke the build. Well, that means Dave's got to go. <laughs> you know, and this is stuff that we all know kind of tacitly, but we're too polite to ever say anything. But if it's, if it's sitting up there on the wall and it's public, you know, even Dave, he's going to look up there and says, you know, I better start looking for <laughs> another line of work. I, I'm holding this team back. You know, assuming that I'm honest a little bit, you know, with myself, um, and, and so th this is the this is how you, uh, you you don't really measure. Well, you do you measuring productivity, uh, but in terms of business value. You know, uh, did the, the the customer is the customer using your work? Are they happy about it? Do they send little notes down to the manager saying, hey, your team really came through for me this week? You know, um, and then you, you gradually add things in 
uh, like, uh, yeah, we added business value and it only took us six weeks instead of six months. So, so, so you start building from that and coming up with these uh, alternative metrics. And I forget now, uh, Kent Beck has at least one paper that he wrote that suggested the metrics that should be used for an agile or for an XP team. You know, to, to judge their productivity and rate. And they were not the same things that Scrum uses. Uh, you know, the Scrum metrics are not that good, I don't think. But. You said that we are too polite right now to demonstrate people their metrics and to, like you said, to let our HR department pay them different money for people who are a hundred times more performance or pay them a hundred times more, more money than, than other people. And um, this is kind of gets me back to the start of our discussion. So we are now too polite, but maybe we're too polite only for the tech people, only in the area of tech people. Because if you look at the, let's say farmers, or you took a look at the people who build houses, they are, we're not too polite to them because we are working with them for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we show them the metrics and we show them how much they make every day and we're not being too polite. So maybe something is wrong with the tech industry right now. This politeness is kind of damaging us a little bit, no? Yes. Um, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, there was a huge movement in software, uh, the quality movement and uh, you know, software quality. Uh, lots of conferences, lots of journals, things of this sort. And the idea was that um, you know, we, 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 need, we needed to deal with this kind of thing. Uh, you know, the, the, the software we're building is really bad and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So we need to improve quality. And there were two very different kinds of schools of thought. And th this is in the management press. This isn't in software necessarily. Uh, one of them was Six Sigma. The, the idea of imposing all of these kinds of controls so that we are correct or we do things down to, you know, Six Sigma, uh, you know, level of quality. Uh, we have one failure in every, what, 100,000, uh, whatever Six Sigma comes out to be. Well, the other one was uh, in the United States, at least, that was never quite as popular was the Malcolm Baldrige approach to doing things. Malcolm Baldrige was a, a government official, but he also was a business uh, manager, uh, MBA uh, kind of person, wrote a lot about management. And Baldrige talked about this need for openness and transparency. Uh, because you know, with Six Sigma, you're not doing anything at all to expose or to make public or to hold people accountable. You're, you're trying to make the process as a substitute for the people. Well, Malcolm Baldrige did the exact opposite. And uh, he did a lot of work, or a lot of people did work following his approach in education. So they would go into uh, a grade school classroom. So this, this is not software. This is you know, an average grade school classroom. And what they would do is that they would put up on the wall, it was oftentimes anonymous, uh, you know, you didn't put names up on the wall, but you'd put up all the grades for an assignment or all the uh, course grades for this, you know, this term. They, they would be up on the wall in various ways. You'd put people's work 
actual work up on the walls. You know, take their name off of it, put the, the work up on the wall. So that all the kids in this classroom are seeing all of this stuff. And again, it's, it's not telling them anything they didn't know. It's making it public. So when I was a teacher, I would sit in the class and I would give out team assignments. Team assignments are horribly unpopular <laughs> at the university uh, because the university is built on individual competition. You know, there's only so many A's and everybody wants their A. Um, so you're always out to, to you know, so you give a team assignment and say, okay, everybody on the team is gonna get the same grade. Boy, do students hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they really, really hate that. Um, but you give them that assignment and the, the students in the team, they know, they know exactly who is contributing to the team effort, who is just kind of slacking and riding along because they know that they're going to get the same grade so they don't have to really work hard. I mean, they know this. Okay, so when I would give team assignments, I would also have them do something that, you know, posted each individual effort so that I could see uh, as the project was going forward, I could see, oh, this person checked in this, this person did that, this person did that. And just making it public, everybody performed better. You didn't have slackers. I mean, every, because they didn't want to be embarrassed. And, and, and you know, if, if it's quiet, if it's tacit, they don't get embarrassed, but if it's public, they do. Uh, so, so yeah, transparency is really important. Getting rid of this uh, politeness is really important. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what do you think? I'm a little shifting a little bit more to the personality of programmers. Who do you think is a? What is it for you a talented programmer? And who is? you know, lacking talent? How would you define the talent of programs, of programming? Um, so uh, again, when I was, uh, I'll go back to my, the days that I was teaching, which is when I had not only had to try to recognize talented programmers, I had to give them grades, <laughs> um, you know, fair grades. And so, the, the kind of skills that a, a talented programmer uh, would have is that number one, they would have at least one interest outside of programming. They'd be musicians. Uh, they would be uh, hobbyists like the maker movement, you know, people that, that, that like to build things with their hands. Um, maybe they would be, even be a potter or they would be something else but they would have some interest other than programming. Um, they probably were uh, fairly well read. You know, they would read fiction, they would read um, uh, books on science or they would read other kinds of things. You know, not, not as much as I do, but they would, they would at least read these different kinds of things. And so what they, when they would uh, uh, sit down with something, uh, they would sit down and they would have a, a problem they had to solve, but they didn't have a single way of doing it. Uh, you, uh, the, the kind of formal logic puzzles that uh, are given oftentimes as uh, uh, tests for programmers before you hire them. 
you know, Google is famous for doing this kinds of things, you know, these, these logic puzzles. Well, these people would sit down and they, they could probably do most of those logic puzzles, but they also said, you know, um, I was reading this last week in this other area and that gives me the idea, that gives me a metaphor. You know, it doesn't give me the answer, but it gives me, it suggests a different way of looking at how the problem might be solved. So they have this, uh, this kind of breadth of understanding outside of programming that gives them perspective, that gives them the, um, yeah, the, the ability to, to see things, uh, to analyze it, look at what's there with an open mind a little bit and, and discover. This, is, this is, might be an interesting way of approaching this problem. And let's say you are the manager, you have a team of programmers, let's say 10 people, and you, and you clearly see that only two of them are actually talented and the rest of them are not really that much talented and interested. Is it possible to, what would you do? You would try to fix these eight people or you would try to change them to different people? Um, I, would, I would try to, to uh, I would try to motivate them to improve themselves. So you, you, you can't, you can't do anything to another another person. Uh, you know, you look at look at the world of addiction or alcoholism or something like this. You know, you can't fix an alcoholic. They have to get to the point where they're ready to fix themselves. It's the same thing with programmers. If you come in uh, with a programmer and you uh, you say. Um, you point out, look, this is really a cool way that this was done over here. Um, and you provide constructive criticism. Well, did you, did you think about doing this kind of thing? Uh, what would you do if you had to do it this way instead of that way? I mean, you, you ask these kinds of open-ended questions and if they don't respond to them, they aren't ready to be a good programmer. And so you use your 30 day probationary period, you get rid of them and bring in somebody new who is. I mean, uh, um, if, if you think about it, and if you are willing to give yourself some time as a manager, as the manager of, of programmers, you can say, okay, um, right now we need a thousand programmers in this shop because the way things are done and because of the the hole that we've dug ourselves into. Well, if I had a hundred programmers who are all like Igor, we could do, you know, we, we could get all the work done and probably at a higher level of quality and everything else. So I sit there and I said, my goal this year is to take my thousand programmers and reduce them down to a hundred. And I, I tell them, I says, you know, this, this is the goal is that uh, uh, we, we want people who have this skill set, this kind of knowledge, this kind of breadth of understanding, uh, this kind of quirky way of thinking, uh, this way of working cooperatively with each other. Uh, and and uh, uh, you say, you know, at the end of the year, 
100 of you are going to be here. And you're all going to earn, you know, five times what you're making now. Which, you know, will make the IT manager happy because I'm still cutting his budget <laughs> significantly. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's up to you. You change. You know, the, the, this is the goal. This is the objective. This is what you have to be as a person. Um, and then I, I could set uh, a bunch of uh, independent goals. So uh, I had a program at New Mexico Highlands, the last university that I was teaching. It was an apprenticeship program. And I actually had the opportunity to apply a lot of these different kinds of rules and so on. Um, uh, we had people come into this program. They weren't cherry picked. We had one kid come into the program with his girlfriend, uh, his pregnant girlfriend. Uh, uh, this was his third child by the third different woman. He was uh, 20 years old. <laughs> he did not know how to do cut and paste. I mean, he literally couldn't go into a word processing program and do cut and paste. And this is in September. So in January, he was leading a team. He was teaching them how to use the J2EE framework. So uh, we were writing production code for the state engineer's office. Uh, it was a system that they had set off to, to China or somewhere and came back and didn't work, of course. And so we were, uh, his team was doing this and he was teaching these people how to use the J2EE framework and Java uh, in six months. So, I mean, this stuff works. This stuff really works. But in that class, in addition to doing their programming assignments, uh, they also had, uh, well, we did a, this, this kid in particular, he did a really cool uh, review of a movie um, called Hero. Uh, Hero is one of these uh, uh, a kung fu kind of movies out of China, you know, lots of color pageantry and people flying through the air and slicing swords and so on. Um, but the the hero of the movie uh, is he, he wants to assassinate this uh, warlord. Uh, and he gets to the point where he can, in fact, assassinate this warlord, but then he chooses not to because they are looking at a piece of calligraphy and the warlords is explaining the meaning of this calligraphy. And the guy says, oh, this isn't somebody I want to kill. But anyway, they, the, this kid was the only one in, in the class that did that movie review and got the point of the movie correctly. Uh, we had uh, writer's workshops. So people had to write uh, material. But then they sat in a group and they critiqued each other's work. Just like if, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a plop conference. Uh, PLOP conference, but uh, this pattern languages of programming, and it's based uh, around a writer's workshop. Instead of being a competitive conference, you submit a paper, and then everybody critiques and helps you make the paper better uh, in, in this technique called a writer's workshop. Well, we did that kind of thing. Um, in one year, we had we had twenty something students in that first year. Uh, 12 of them wrote paper, had papers accepted at peer review conferences, you know, like uh, 
at that time it was Uppsala. And uh, the first couple of years of the Agile conference in the US, both of those conferences had better than an 80% rejection rate. So they, they you know, rejected 80 some odd percent of the papers that were submitted to them. Well, I had 12 students that got papers accepted to those conferences. And uh, the, the room was like a, an agile room. We had uh, hard floors, roller chairs, islands with you know computer workstations. But you'd sit there and you'd watch these people during the day and um, they'd, they'd be working on this code over here and they would run into a problem and they would all of a sudden they're sliding their chair across the floor and talking to this other person over here who they know, you know has better skills than they do or, or can answer the question for them. And there's all this freedom and movement around the room. Uh, and it, I mean, it worked really, really well. And I think you could do the same thing in a business setting, but uh, uh, it, it takes a manager who's not into command and control and it takes people who are willing to, to work. Now, they, these kids were motivated twice. Number one, they were getting paid for their work, but only if the customer accepted it. And they were getting a grade. You know, they were going to get a degree. And so they had the motivation to do something. Maybe that's what you should do with your programmers. You should have your programmers and say, oh, well, if you have met these kinds of goals, your salary is going to go up 5%. If you haven't, it's going to go down 5%. The HR will not allow me to do that. <laughs> That's but true. Now we're getting to very interesting question. Uh, we're talking about talented programmers. I'm sure you agree that uh, talented programmers and talented individuals, they are usually have their own individual thinking and they they have their own ideas and concepts and um, you know what happens to people who read your book and then they read my books and they start writing code this way they in most cases get fired and that's that's mm -hmm. what's happening on the market because the majority the the mainstream java development and uh, all other object-oriented development it's going one way and when they read the alternative way, even though this way may look better, and it is, I believe it is better, but when they start to apply this thinking in their in their daily work, then very often they write me emails about that. They, I, I know these stories. Oh yeah. Sometimes yeah. they get fired. Sometimes they don't even don't have any chance to get a job, because when they mention your name or sometimes my name on the interview, uh, the job the, the hiring manager immediately says, okay, we know this stories, bye-bye. This is not the way object-oriented programming works. So what would you, yes. what's your advice? What to do to, to these young people who are, <laughs> who want to yeah. stay, you know, in companies, they want to make money, but at the same time, they, they have their own thinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, a real problem and it's not just a problem with management and you know, uh, within the IT world. It, it's a problem with the, the social structure. Uh, so way, way back when I first started teaching objects. So this is 1991-92. Uh, I, would, I would tell my students, I says, you know, this is, this is the right way of doing things. This is a good way of doing it. This is a really, really fun way of doing things. Um, and they would see that. And then I would say, you know, you're going to have a huge problem 
convincing management, you know, when you leave the school and you go out and you get your job, um, actually most of these people already had jobs because that was a requirement to get into my program. But, uh, you know, when, when you go back to the office on Monday, you're going to encounter all of these kinds of resistance. And I says, the only real way you're going to, to get something done is that, uh, you know, pick out uh, three or four of your friends in this class that you know are good, that have really, you know, figured this stuff out and are doing it right. Form your own little company and start doing things and, you know, be the entrepreneur or, and you don't even have to be uh, like, like today's people where they want to make, uh, you know, an IPO and sell out and be a billionaire. But just start your own company where the four or five of you are doing what you want to do the way you want to do it. Do it well and, uh, and you know, pretty soon someone's going to notice. And you get enough people doing this kind of thing. But that, that doesn't work because you've got kids at home. You've got a wife that wants, you know, a new Mercedes. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, you, um, uh, you know, most, most cultures in the world are not cooperative. Something like this might work in China uh, and probably is working in China without us knowing about it. But in the West with our individualism and, you know, this, this, it, it just doesn't work. I mean, the, the social pressures are against it. Um, so, so no, I don't know. I don't have really good advice for, for people. I know that most of them are unhappy or unemployed. They're employed and unhappy or they're unemployed. And, you know, it's sad. I mean, it's, it's really a, a bad problem. And I, I don't know what to, uh, to do about it. Except again, right now I've decided to quit talking to the IT world for the most part, uh, I am focusing my efforts on business management. Because if I can show them that, oh, there is a better way, there is an easier way of doing things, they'll fire their IT management and you know hire a whole bunch of people <laughs> like you and I, you know, to do this work for them. Uh, but that's where the key is. I mean, that's where the money is. So uh, that, that's who has to be convinced is the business management. And it's not gonna be that hard. You know, business, if you look at the business press and the management press, uh, the books and stuff that people in that field have been written and the journal articles and so on, uh, they've been talking about agility uh, and chaos since the uh, 1980s. You know, the software world didn't start doing this stuff until after 2000. So, so you, you have to learn to talk their language, uh, put it in, you know, here's the business case for doing things this way. Here's what you're going to gain as a business. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if it's going to work any better than the stuff I did for software. But that, that's where my efforts are, is that because that, that, that's who needs to be convinced, the people with the money. And um, my next question is 
probably related to this one. So what's your motivation for writing books? Why do you do this? Aside from money, but I don't think there's a lot of money there, but still, what's oh, your no. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the biggest motivation, uh, just like it is with teaching, you know, when, when I was teaching a class, um, I have a hundred people go through my classes every semester. Um, and if one of them is up and says, wow, this is the best class I ever took. Wow, this is the best book I ever read. I mean, yeah, it's, it's you know, 10 people. <laughs> and it's not gonna be the bestseller list, but it's enough. It's enough. So you care about what's going to happen after, or you, or this is give, or this is your joy. This is your fun. That understanding that some people may get out of your semester and say, yeah, it's uh, so. So my motivation for writing the book is the, the the people that come and says, yeah, this you know this mattered. This made a difference uh, to me as a person, and then uh, you know letting them know that yeah. I'm there, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that this helped, you know, go out, try to do it, try to apply it when you have problems, you know, send me questions and stuff. I mean, I'm always open to receiving these kinds of things. So I, I get a sense of engagement with people and I can kind of share their suffering. I can share their joy when they have a success or whatever. I mean, uh, we're, we're talking about motivation. There is a part of me uh, that also would like to change the world. You know, I, I really would like to find that lever and, and change the world for the better. Um, you did actually a lot. <laughs> uh, I hope so. Uh, to, to, you know, the, uh, the company that I was uh, uh, co-founded in uh, Netherlands you know, before COVID sent me home. Um, we, we, uh, we, we, that, that was our mission statement was to change the world. And so we were doing things, we were doing things with small talk. We were doing things with pure objects in terms of the products and stuff we were developing. We also uh, only would work with companies that were engaged in making the world a better place. So our first client was a, a company called Sea Rangers, uh, which is a, a nonprofit company. And they are basically building ships and teaching people marine biology and conservation and all these kinds of skills. And then they go out and they, they work with, uh, with governments to kind of uh, monitor what's going on in the oceans. Uh, they also provide services like uh, uh, maintenance, uh, offshore windmill farms and things of this sort. But I mean, they're, they're committed to making a real difference in the world. They are not just making a profit. Uh, there's a, a whole group of people, that are, they're called B corporations, the letter B, uh, B Corps. And these are, are companies that like Patagonia, the people that make the outerwear, the hiking outerwear and so on, um, that their, their mission statement is to make the world a better place. 
you know, conservation or to make the world a better place with people. Uh, there's another whole thing again in the management area. They're, they're called teal organizations. Uh, the book was Reinventing the Organization. And uh, it's about how you build companies that have empowered employees that work collaboratively together instead of competitively together. Uh, that decision-making is pushed down uh, to you know, the employee level instead of being isolated up at, at the management level. So working with these kinds of companies and is, uh, is another way of uh, making a difference. And you will also find that those kinds of companies are really open to some of these other ideas we've talked about, uh, you know, today, uh, you know, servant leadership, um, um, empowered employees, letting people self-manage to some degree or another. And they, are, they have mechanisms in place to support that. So that's another thing I would give as advice, you know, is, is quit working for who you're working for and find one of these people, <laughs> you know, and, and go to work for them. Uh, a, a lot of these people, since they're not totally profit motivated, that you, you may take a salary cut, you know, 10%, 20%, something like that. But, you know, you'll get it back eventually. Plus the fact you'll have a whole lot more fun working. That makes sense. And I actually, why I ask you about the book, because uh, sometimes I recommend to these people who are really interested in uh, pursuing the idea of the true, the, the proper object orientation in, in programming, and actually think about also publishing something. Maybe not a book as a big work, but maybe publishing some articles or speaking at conferences. To, so making ideas more public. And that way, mm -hmm. it's easier to defend them in front of your team, which is, you know, quite conservative and don't accept new ideas. So do you think it's a good strategy in general? Uh, yes. Um, can you edit this out? I've got to let my dog out. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, no, yes. You... Uh, you have to you know, be, be bold. You have to, to tell people what you believe. You, know, you have to uh, show people what works um, or what has worked for you and, and not be shy about it. So publishing papers, articles, trying to speak at conference, organizing conferences. Um, All of these things are, are, are very worthwhile. And I, I would recommend them. They, they can be difficult for people to do. Um, user group. So, so one of the things that we did with uh, objects back when I was first starting this stuff and before the book is that uh, we founded a object technology user group in Minneapolis, Minnesota which is where I was teaching at the time. And, uh, you know, at first it was just, you know, people getting together and talking about this, but also talking about how they were doing it at work and you know, things of this sort. Uh, we we uh, organized a conference, uh, Current Object Practice and Experience Conference in 94. 
And we invited everybody. We had Rebecca Wersprock, we had Richard Gabriel, we had Kent Beck, uh, we had Ward Cunningham, we had, uh, uh, I mean, anybody who was anybody except Brady Booch and uh, Ivar Jacobson turned us down. They wouldn't come. But everybody else who had written books or whatever came to this conference uh, and were speakers at the conference. But uh, half of the conference was just people from companies saying, oh, wow, you know, this is what we were doing with uh, objects. Uh, we had a company from Texas that came in and showed us how they had, uh, they had to write uh, code for a micro switch, you know, with like a 10 millisecond switching budget. You know, I mean, that was their time budget. And they had two teams, one of them writing in Smalltalk and one of them writing in C++. Well, the Smalltalk team finished their program in six months. The C++ team was still working a year and a half later and never did finish. Um, but the, the problem was, well, how is Smalltalk ever going to make this time budget? Well, they, they wrote the program, got it to work, got it to do what it was supposed to have to do. And then they did a, a little trick. They, they pre-compiled the methods. So instead of you know sending a message to an object and have the object ask the class if, for a copy of it and so on, they just did that pre-compilation. So the, uh, the, the call, the message went to the object and the response came back immediately. Uh, and they were able to do their time budget just with a simple little trick. But I mean, those are the kinds of things that really inspire people. Um, and yeah, just to, you know, it's just cool to stand in front of 500 people and have your ideas acknowledged and stuff. Uh, I highly recommend it. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's great. We're a little bit running out of time. So my last question is, what is happiness for you? How would you define that? What do I define as happiness? Yes. Um, yeah. Having enough, uh, you know, so that I'm not worried uh, or constantly, you know, wondering or caring or concerned about uh, where, where my next sandwich is going to come from or, or whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, having, having friends, uh, having enough. No, I don't need to be an influencer with 10,000 or 10 million you know, Facebook friends or whatever. Um, you know, I have a couple dozen high quality friends like yourself. That's enough. So happiness for me is enough. Having enough. Okay, that sounds like a great answer. Thank you very much for the talk. Uh, it was really Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I hope we're entertaining for your listeners. Definitely, definitely. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye, David. All right. Bye. Bye.